What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Sahel region stretches across Africa, just south of the Sahara. Jihadists there are feeling increasingly emboldened. Mali appears lost, and the front lines are shifting south into Benin and Ghana. Is West Africa prepared? And it's time for our annual Glass Ceiling Index, looking at the role and influence of women in the workforce. The gender pay gap is thinning and more women are in work, but as we find every year, there's still plenty of progress to be made. First up, though. As the war in Ukraine grinds on, with humanitarian corridors of escape opening and then being shelled and refugees piling up at borders, protesters in the West are unsurprisingly out in force. In New York City, chants of unity. In London, the Ukrainian national anthem. In Sydney, a call for no-fly zones. What's been unexpected is the scope of dissent inside Russia. In Moscow, demonstrators on march cried, no to war. Thousands of protesters have already been arrested. There's footage on encrypted messaging apps showing them being herded onto buses and taken away. Elsewhere, there's more than peaceful assembly. In Kaliningrad, a woman faced down police, saying she'd survived the siege of Leningrad. The officer asks if she's come to support the fascists in Ukraine. In St. Petersburg, it was tussles with police. In Yekaterinburg, beatings at their hands. Not every Russian sees the same media, believes in the same narrative. Sources of real news have been shut down or run out, and that rift in society is growing. Amongst a lot of people, the mood is the one of nervousness and depression. Arkady Ostrovsky is The Economist's Russia and Eastern Europe editor. It depends on which supermarket you go to. You know, if you go to well, the supermarket where the middle class goes, then the, the, all the talk is hushed up, but it's all about war. People are stopping on the street, looking at videos coming down, you know, through telegram messaging channels. They're exchanging messages with their friends. They're all talking about, you know, is Putin going to impose martial law? What does it mean for the borders? I mean, they see they can't fly out of the country. I mean, you have to appreciate the scale of change in people's lives. It's just so enormous. Over a week, Putin has destroyed everything that people believed Russia was for 30 years. 
And what are people's views? Indeed, how much do people actually know about what's happening in Ukraine? Well, that obviously depends on the age and the use of the media. So people under the age of 45 who are more reliant on the internet, their views are very different from the views of the people who are sort of over 55, 60, who are more vulnerable in terms of propaganda attack from Russian state television. So the country is very much divided. But for younger Russians, the view is that normality is no more. And their perception of war has changed dramatically from the first day when it started to today. But for a substantial fraction of the population, there is a view that uh, that Russia is, is in the right, was not the aggressor, is doing a, a righteous thing in Ukraine. That's harder to tell now because uh, Russia is turning totalitarian. It's a dictatorship now. It's no longer just an autocracy. Obviously, polling people in an autocracy is a very different proposition because people are scared. They're answering questions out of fear. And they, you know, we've read about it in George Orwell's 1984. People try to block it out because when you have a total lie, when you have a big lie, whether you believe in it or whether you actually choose to side with it because the alternative of rejection is too costly, is too horrible and is too scary, uh, and you can't imagine that your government would lie to you in such an enormous way, or if you, you suspect it, you certainly don't want to protest, even inside your own mind. And that's what gets people to side with the propaganda. It's a survival strategy in a way for many Russians. So what they really think in this moment when Russia is turning totalitarian is not a straightforward answer. And and what about the the elite class and the the oligarchs uh, that we often hear about that that kind of give Vladimir Putin political cover? How, how is all this landing with them? Well, obviously, you know, the oligarchs were the first trying to get out. Those who still could, it's now getting harder. Obviously, nobody is happy for Putin to take them to war and to destroy the value of everything they've had and built and to cut them off from the West. A lot of these people have signed up for a kleptocratic, cynical regime. They didn't sign up for being complicit in war crimes and being sanctioned in the way that they are. So obviously there is a lot of unhappiness amongst the Russian businessmen, amongst the Russian oligarchs. There is also a lot of fear and unhappiness about what's going on amongst the technocrats, those who run keep the Russian financial system, Russian government, Russian economy afoot. And I wouldn't be surprised if Putin in the next few days imposes some sort of stop list on stopping the professional classes he relies upon for running the economy of his regime. He will put some stop list for them sort of uh, leaving the country. And we spoke on the show yesterday about the very swift effect of, of sanctions. How is that landing in Russia? Well, in a way, you can see what's happening by looking at the withdrawal of the money from Russian banks. They see that the stores that were sort of iconic middle class stores like IKEA are closing down. Apple Store has shut down. The brands are leaving Russia. They see it in the exchange rate. So, they, of course, people feel the effect and they, it's feeding through inflation. So people do see the effect of it, the economic effect. Uh, the impact is great on the middle class, probably than on the lower income part of the population. But I think we're going to see it across the whole country. And, and what about the, the voices of protest? We've seen a lot of footage of people protesting across Russia against the war, those who know that's what's going on. Yes, we have seen the protests and they're not stopping. And this is very interesting. Again, it's mostly the young. Again, it's the internet users who are coming out in the streets. And I think it's going to, that conflict 
and the protests are only going to escalate, as will the level of violence that the Russian state is prepared to unleash against their own people. We've seen a huge number of arrests in not just Moscow, but St. Petersburg, across Russia over the past day or so, four and a half, nearly 5,000 people detained. There are some horrific, truly horrific stuff coming out on whatever Russian media is still sort of left uh, working through VPN, police turning up in the houses of of teenagers uh, who protest against the war. Uh, But resistance continues, and I think this is very, very important. But I think it will be answered with more terror, with more violence, and we'll hear more horrors that young Russians are subjected to at police stations. So in that sense, it's it's too late to to ramp up the propaganda machine, the censorship machine and anymore. Now everything will be a matter of repression rather than just simply hiding the truth. Yes, because the propaganda, you know, works if people, everybody consumes it. But if part of your population actually doesn't have television set, doesn't actually watch television that bombards them with this propaganda, then it's a fact. It's not going to be that great. I mean, the Soviets had a complete control over the media. But that didn't change the fact that nobody actually, you know, most people didn't believe that. Now, people tend to believe propaganda, as I said, they choose to believe it when it's reinforced with violence. Violence and propaganda go hand in hand. And if you are beaten up, humiliated, tortured, as what we see in Russian prisons, and this is uh, going on at the same time as this barrage of propaganda fire against the Russian population, then, of course, your survival strategy, as I said, is you choose to say that you believe it. My sense is that the Russian state really cannot increase the volume of propaganda any further. It's already at full sort of throttle. News programs that used to be one hour, now three hours uh, of hatred. But where the Kremlin still has some room for ratcheting up is repression. Thanks very much for joining us, Arkady. Thank you, Jason. We're still interested to know what you're interested to know. On Friday, we'll answer your questions on the show. Wondering how the war will affect everything from wheat to semiconductors? Whether war crimes accusations will go anywhere? What a two-stage Molotov cocktail is? Just send us an email, podcasts at economist.com, and we'll try to get you an answer. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Governments across West Africa are struggling to deal with the rapid advance of jihadists. Insurgents have long plagued the region, but an increase in mass killings has led to coups in Burkina Faso and Mali in the past year. Relations between both countries and the West have since been strained. Neither was invited to recent counterterrorism training with Western forces. Et la victoire face au terrorisme, elle n'est pas possible si elle n'est pas portée par l'État lui-même. Et pourquoi nous décidons aujourd'hui de partir Parce que 
Last month, Emmanuel Macron announced that French forces were leaving Mali. The French president lamented that the new government was not prioritizing counterterrorism. Instead of returning home, though, some French troops may head to neighboring Niger to continue the fight. West Africa is now bracing itself for a wave of jihadist violence, and security forces are stretched to the breaking point. Frankly, have struggled really badly in the fight against jihadists in the region. So Mali and Burkina Faso have both suffered coups, uh, and these have been precipitated in a way by uh, just how badly that the fight has been going. And, and the military's come in and said, we're going to take over and do better. That's a pretty dubious claim. But these countries have lost control of swathes of their territory to jihadists. In, in much of the country, basic services are absent as well. Kenley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist. He's based in Dakar. Communication too, which is really a key part of stopping the spread of insurgency, communication to local populations by both governments and some of those Western partners in the region have often been pretty poor, and misinformation about the fight against jihadism has spiraled. So with basic services, as you say, often absent in communication, patchy, what sorts of efforts are being made to counter the jihadists? Western countries, aside from being there themselves trying to fight, have also been training local forces to combat these jihadists. I visited a major training exercise in Ivory Coast last month. There, there were soldiers from the Ivory Coast, from Ghana, from Niger and elsewhere, training really alongside and learning from European and American commandos. These drills are called Operation Flintlock. And the idea is that they would help soldiers and, and special forces in the region get an edge over insurgents. But in a way, these trainings also highlighted some of the weaknesses, uh, both of the regional forces themselves and of the approach of Western partners. The defense in the region is meant to be African-led, but really it's been Western troops that have shaped and led strategies to fight jihadists. And notably also at this training, the two countries that most need help, uh, Burkina Faso and Mali, uh, weren't present at all because colonels in those countries had staged coups. Uh, and it's also somewhat striking that the colonels who had staged those coups were in fact previous attendees of Operation Flintlock. And even the training itself was pretty poorly communicated to locals, whilst I as a foreign hack was able to, to tag along, albeit in a somewhat controlled way, local journalists were only invited to the opening ceremony. So this communication problem was replicated even at the training. So what has all this meant for the advance of the jihadists? In Mali, which was really where this insurgency began uh, right back in, into 2012-2013, Mali's been largely overwhelmed. The head of U.S. Special Forces in Africa told me that they have something close to freedom of movement and maneuver in much of Mali. And this has been, in a way, compounded by the country's decision to sort of blame a lot of these failures on French troops uh, who've been there for about eight years. And those troops are now pretty worryingly being replaced by Russian mercenaries. And those mercenaries have a very, very worrying human rights record in other parts of the continent. So with Mali, in a way, all but written off and Western forces leaving, these front lines are really shifting. The worst violence last year was actually in Burkina Faso. And then in Niger, to the east, jihadists have also overrun large parts of southern Niger. But perhaps what's alarming people most now is the headway that jihadists are making in moving south. Since 2020, they've attacked Ivory Coast about 16 times, killing at least 22 members of the security forces. We're seeing attacks increasing in Benin. Uh, and then Ghanaian officials, one I spoke to 
Felicia Twimbarima, who's the defense attache in the Ivory Coast, are also increasingly worried. Every indication is that they are looking for money. They are looking to get to the coast. I'm not surprised they are here, but, but the speed is, is probably it's, it's alarming. Ghana has so far avoided violence directly in their country, but jihadist groups have reportedly established cells there, and so they are concerned that attacks may not be far away. And so how are these new frontline countries, Benin, Ghana, and Ivory Coast, how are they responding to the threat? In 2020, Ivory Coast doubled to about 3,000, the number of soldiers it deployed in its northern frontier regions. Ghana, too, has moved troops to its north, and it's also set up its first ever special forces unit. I actually spoke to a Ghanaian commander from their special forces unit who said that you know, regional forces really need to be working together to combat the spread of jihadist militants. We have an African adage. If you, you decide not to care about what's happening to your neighbor, you should prepare to be the next victim. So um, we are getting ready, training, and then um, preparing our troops. The commander also emphasized that his country was doing a good job on getting at some of the root causes of jihadism and the things that allow jihadists to recruit, such as unemployment you know, or lack of basic government services in the north of these countries. And so is battling those sorts of root cause issues something that the region needs to do better? I think absolutely. It's clear that troops are only part of the solution. And one of the lessons I think that they're beginning to draw from the strife in Burkina Faso and Mali to their north is that tackling these other issues is really critical. And in Ivory Coast, we actually saw in January, the Prime Minister, Patrick Achi, travel to the North and announce about $55 million worth of spending to help young people explicitly saying, you're not neglected, you're not forgotten. And that's actually part of a bigger plan to spend $5.5 billion on social programs around the country over the next three years, uh, in part to build resilience against jihadism. Those in the region are also looking to Western partners to help A senior Ivorian defense official told me that Western allies also need to perhaps rebalance a little their response and to focus a little more on development and perhaps not just on military solutions. He emphasized that poverty, not ideology, tends to drive extremist recruitment in the region. And so these sorts of initiatives are clearly necessary. Are they sufficient? If they work well, do you think we could see a real slowdown in the jihadist advance? Well, I think they are very important, but most immediately there are concerns that poorly trained troops may exacerbate the problem. And there was evidence of that even among the elite units at the Flintlock exercises. Some trainers told me that these special forces from the region weren't really familiar with working on trust building with locals. And then perhaps equally worrying, there's some evidence that these coastal countries may be repeating some of the mistakes made to the north and the Sahel, including blaming particular ethnic groups for jihadist attacks. And that's increased the cleavages, which jihadists then try to take advantage of. But I think the biggest problem um, for these countries is just one of time. Development is crucial. Improving the security forces will help a lot. But they don't have very much time at all, I think, to work on those kinds of responses before the violence is likely to uh, escalate further. And once it does, making those kind of changes, creating jobs and development is very much harder So there is still a little window, but it is closing fast. And for this kind of activity to work, there's really not a moment to lose. Kinley, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.
Over the past year or so, plenty of women have reached the top ranks of their fields. In business... Citigroup is making history by naming a woman as its next chief executive officer. Jane Fraser will become the first woman to lead a major U.S. bank. Pending a confirmation vote in the world's most watched court... I've nominated the Circuit Court of Appeals, Katanji Brown-Jackson, one of our nation's top legal minds. And in international institutions, such as the World Trade Organization, where Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala was appointed Director General. I'm grateful for the trust you have in me, not just as a woman and an African, but also in my knowledge, experience, and as some of you have said, courage and passion But these outstanding examples mask some less inspiring averages. To mark International Women's Day, The Economist has updated its glass ceiling index. It's a mathematical analysis of the OECD club of mostly rich countries, ranking them in terms of how many women are in the workforce and how influential they are when they get there. And if you think that glass ceiling that women come up against is thinning much, think again. The index shows that the top ranks of society, both in business and in politics, are still stubbornly male. Vingero Nkandawire writes for The Economist. Women are less likely to be in the labor force, and they also get paid less. So in short, women are not having it all. Which is a familiar story. We look at the glass ceiling index every year, and and this is consistently the story. Where, Where are the improvements to be made? The main issue is that Success at school fails to translate into equal opportunity in the workplace across most of the OECD countries. So what that means is that despite girls outperforming boys in school and in higher education, the workforce and politics are still dominated by men. And on top of that, outcomes are generally worse for women of colour. They earn even less than white women and are even more underrepresented in senior roles. So let's look at the the, the top of the index rankings. Where are the countries that do things well? Four Nordic countries, Sweden, Iceland, Finland, and Norway, sit at the top of the index as the best place to be a working woman. Women are present in the labor force at similar rates to men, uh, but also the gender pay gap in countries like Sweden and Norway are less than the OECD average. Women are also represented at the top of government, so nearly half of all parliamentary seats in these countries are occupied by women. And female executives have at least a third of seats on listed company boards. In Iceland, 47% of all board seats are held by women, and that's the highest rate in the world. If you compare that with America, the share of women on boards is less than a third, and in South Korea, it's less than one in ten. And the Nordic countries are consistently at the top of our glass ceiling index. Why do you suppose that is? Well, Finland has the largest share of women with degrees uh, compared with men, followed by Sweden. But a bigger part of it is culture. So Scandinavian countries are known for their greater sense of equality when it comes to childcare. Parenting isn't just a job for women in these countries. It's much more equal. And in the places where that's not the case, that sense of equality isn't very widespread, what's what's being done to kind of level the playing field? So new legislation is helping. Female board representation was up in the Netherlands and Germany uh, thanks to new quotas. 
And we saw new gender parity laws in Mexico that now mean that there's many women as there are men in parliament. You've also seen really strong female representation politics in places like New Zealand, where Jacinda Ardern is the country's youngest female leader. But we need change across the board. So you think by the time we're talking about next year's Glass-Seeley Index, things might look a little more positive? I hope so. Recent world events have certainly hampered progress. The lack of childcare during the pandemic did push a disproportionate number of women out of the labor force. As the economy recovers and people start to return to the office, many are returning. But unless the hard lessons from the pandemic are learned, workforces risk an uneven recovery. Vinjero, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show and send us your questions about the Ukraine conflict for Friday's show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.